0: Mason, it's all you. Thanks, Mason, for coming again. I hope to have you back a thousand times more. Well, good morning, everyone. If you didn't catch that, my name is Mason Scroggins. I was here about a month ago, uh, so it seems that I wasn't too awful because I'm back here again with you all. Well, our text this morning is going to be in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. I've been preaching through this book for about eight months now, and the Lord has providentially placed it in my lap and our laps today um, in such a time as this. I know a lot has been going on in the community, and I had no way of planning this. The Lord, He is definitely providential. So we're going to be looking at anxiousness this morning. Of all texts, the Lord has laid this in our lap. So if you would, turn in your Bibles again to Philippians 4, 4 through 7. These are the words of God Let's give attention to them. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we need your hand to be upon us this morning. We thank you that you are already present here with us, but as we open up your word this morning that is living and active and here for us, given for us this day. I pray that our hearts would be receptive to it. We ask that our hearts would be softened, that our ears would be opened, that our minds would be ready to receive what you have to speak to this congregation. Lord, we are your sheep, and we listen to you, our great shepherd. Please pastor us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I don't know if you guys are familiar with these stories or not, they were a little bit familiar with me growing up, but you may have heard before the Uncle Remus Tales. Has anyone in this room ever heard of the Uncle Remus Tales? No one? Okay, my family has of course. (laughs) Well, Uncle Remus Tales were an old Southern children's storybook where they told all kinds of moral stories, but the one I'd like to talk to you about today, and I'm not going to preach from that book, I'm going to preach from the Bible, but it relates to this, is the story of the wonderful Tar Baby. You may have heard of this before. The story accounts of two spunky characters, Briar Fox and Briar Rabbit. And on the hottest day of the year, Briar Fox becomes agitated about his state And he wants to alleviate himself by remembering the cooler days. So he kind of goes to his happy place. He starts thinking, ah, the fall days, the spring days, and that just doesn't do it for him. And as you know, it doesn't do it for you. On a hot day, you can't just get to your happy place and not be hot anymore. You can't relieve yourself. So he started to think more, what am I going to do? And the more he thought about relieving his discontentment, the more he realized he had a problem in his life. And he started to think that his problem was really Briar rabbit. He started to shift his thinking from the cooler days to, you know what, I have a problem that I just need to get rid of. I need to get rid of Briar Rabbit. So the idea entered his mind that he was much happier before old Briar Rabbit showed up, and he devises a plan to relieve himself of his discontentment. So what he does is he takes some tar and turpentine, and he mixes that up in a concoction together and kind of molds it up into this little man. What he does is he slaps a straw hat on it, And he gets a comb, and he puts it as a mustache, and he puts it out in the road, and he thinks, you know what, I'm going to catch Briar Rabbit by this little man. He's going to fall into my trap. And if you know, tar is very sticky, turpentine's nasty, stinky, and he mixes this up, and he's like, I'm going to get him in this. And that was the day that Tar Baby was born. This little man on the side of the road was set out for a trap. And the story accounts that Briar Rabbit came hippity-hoppity, lippity-clippity, sassy as a jaybird, but Briar Fox... He lay low in the distance. Morning, said the rabbit. Tar baby ain't saying nothing. But Briar Fox, he lay low. Briar Rabbit continued on with his southern kindness until getting flustered to the point of saying, If you don't take off that hat and tell me howdy, I'm going to bust your mouth wide open. That's how they say it. There's a, there's a movie. You can watch it. He says it like that. And so he did. But Briar Fox, he lay low. The rabbit swung and fought until he was all cut up in tar baby to where tar baby and briar rabbit were really one. He was covered in tar and nastiness. Now if you know the story, you know that at this point briar fox come out and he tells the rabbit that he's going to kill him. He says, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to take care of you, and you are my problem. But briar rabbit, he thinks smart. He starts thinking, how can I get out of this? And he realizes that he's not going to be able to get out of the tar on his own, but he starts to see in the distance a briar patch. And he thinks, if I can just get in that briar patch, those thorns will maybe rip the tar from me and I'll get free. So he starts using reverse psychology on the fox. He says, oh, whatever you do, you can can kill me this way, you can kill me that way, but whatever you do, please don't throw me in the briar patch. And so he convinces the fox, using reverse psychology, to throw him in the briar patch. He does that very thing. And as the story tells Lippity-clippity, hippity-hoppity, off went the rabbit once he was thrown into the briar patch. He was free. Now, these two characters in this story had a common problem that everyone in this room shares. We're all slaves at times to our emotions. We get caught up in them. Briar Fox was anxiously hot and began to think of a quick fix. Have you ever heard of a quick fix before? I'm I'm using terms by a a Jewish psychologist named Edwin Friedman. It's really funny, taking the Southern story about children's stories and Edwin Friedman, bringing these two together. But there's a real reality that Briar Fox wanted a quick fix, is what Edwin Friedman would call it. And that didn't work. So he began to think of other ways that he could get rid of this problem, his discontentment. So he used blame displacement. He's going to say, it's, it's the rabbit's fault that I'm discontent. I just need to get this problem out of my life. So he looked for someone else to take his emotions out on. We all do this at times. Briar Rabbit was anxiously insulted with his southern, um, southern hospitality and kindness. He wasn't feeling much um, reciprocal behavior from the tar baby. So he exploded in reactivity. He's reacting. He's blowing up on it. And we laugh at these two characters, but the truth is is that we are all often as chronically anxious about our lives as these two characters. We blow up at people. We get upset at people. We want to shift the blame from, uh, from ourselves to other people, and we want to just get rid of the problem. But we're often looking in the wrong places. Anxiety is not a matter of turning on an on or off switch. Right? And it's this way with all emotions. Depression. If anyone has dealt with depression in this room, anxiety, all these emotions, you can't just flip a switch and it turns on and off. So we don't choose our emotions or our feelings. They often flood upon us. They kind of engulf us at times, whether we ask them or not. But the good news I have for you today is that while you cannot always control your emotions, your anxiety in particular, there is a way of an escape. We can get out of this. Briar Rabbit realized that he wasn't getting out of Tar Baby on his own. He couldn't just pick the tar out. He needed external forces to act upon him. He needed someone to rescue him or something to rescue him. Now, if we try to control our anxiety... By fighting it, our depression, whatever the emotion is that you're dealing with. This text is talking specifically about anxiety. But whatever it is, the more you fight it, the more you punch it and swing at it, the more you are going to get caught up in it. And we need someone to save us from that cycle of grief, don't we? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm not going to turn to Uncle Remus' tales. We're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at what God's Word says for us in this text this morning. We're going to break it up into five different parts. If you're a note taker, you can take these down. We're going to look at, number one, how anxiety uh, relates to rejoicing. Then we're going to look at reasonableness. What does our reasonableness have to do with anxiety? Number three, our relationship or our reorientation to Christ in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship and Anxiety-evoking circumstances. Number four, our reactivity to it. And number five, we're going to look at the results that we get when we follow God's word and what he tells us to do in the Bible. So number one, we're going to look at verse four. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, Rejoice in the Lord Now this rejoicing is an inner mental state, right? This is in your mind, and it's mental preparation for a non-anxious presence. Because that's what we're really after here, is a non-anxious presence. And it's rooted in our mental state of being. It's not our external forces, it's not the stuff outside of us, it's on the inside. So this is why Paul can say, rejoice in the Lord always. Why can you rejoice in the Lord always? Because the Lord never changes. The Lord is always the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, tomorrow, and forever. But your circumstances, they're going to be always shifting. Will they not? So if our emotions, if our mental state is rooted in our circumstances, it's going to be a crazy ride for you. You're going to be all over the place. It's going to be extremely hard. It's going to be an emotional roller coaster. But if you have your reality set on the Lord, on Christ and who he is You're going to have a solid rock to keep you in the same place and your mental state can stay where it needs to be. And it's really key that we catch those three words. Rejoice how? In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This isn't just a general rejoicing about your circumstances, right? It's not rejoicing that you had a great day at work. It's not rejoicing that you had a promotion. It's rejoicing in the reality of who God is. If you know Christ, if you know the Lord, Lord means master, if you know him as Lord that means that you have someone in charge of your life. You have someone in control of your life. And that, re- that causes you reason to rejoice. So anyone in this room that knows Christ has reason to rejoice. And that joyous, or that joyous behavior, that joyous mindset, that is a way that you can live out in the presence of others, is it not? When you have that mental state showing on the inside, what that does is it shows on the outside. That rejoicing always, even in the midst of suffering, that's seen by others. Which leads us to our next point in verse 5. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is the kind of solitude that's able to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Can we do that as a church? Can we do that? I think that we can because we do have reason to rejoice. And the world is watching right now. And the things that have happened in this city, in your church, and your lives, people see Whether or not you're reasonable or not. Whether or not you have a non-anxious presence or whether you fall into chaos when hard times hit. So let me ask you, church, are you reasonable in the eyes of the world? Or when chaos ensues, when anxiety comes, does your anxiety control the room? Who is in control when hard times hit? Is it your anxiety? Is the whole world kind of revolving around that at the moment? Or can you keep a non-anxious presence about you because you're rooted in the rejoicing of the Lord? It makes a difference in your life. And it makes a difference to those around you as well. A reasonableness is an attitude of being freed from self-obsession. You're letting reason rule you, not just your own feelings, your own thoughts, whatever comes into your mind. Lots of things are going to come into your mind. But a reasonable presence doesn't just talk about yourself all the time. It doesn't just talk about your problems. It doesn't gossip about all this stuff and just let everything pour out. It calmly and coolly applies the gospel to your own life. You preach the gospel to yourself. You should every morning when you wake up, as you go throughout the day. Preach the gospel to yourself, and you calmly and coolly apply that to yourself and your situations and others around you. We are a gospel people, and that reasonableness shows to others. Reasonableness is really just the public, external, non-anxious presence. When others see us and our mental state being in the right place, that shows and it shows on the outside and that causes other people to be drawn into a good father that brings his children at peace. Now, Anxiety, it's unreasonable. It insists on everything revolving around it, doesn't it? When the, when the thing happens, whatever that thing might be, the world slowly starts to revolve around it and it kind of sucks in all the emotions in the room and everyone starts to be pulled into it if you don't take charge if you don't realize what's happening, everyone will get sucked into it. Now remember, anxiety is the tar baby. And the more you kind of interact with it, the more you try to fight it, the more you try to punch it in the face. And that's what we all want to do, isn't it? When our emotions start to come, we just want to fight it, don't we? Anxiety comes, well, I'm just going to, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to fight it off hard. That's the punch in the face. Well, this isn't working. I'm just going to hit it harder. And you just start getting stuck and you're all getting wrapped up into it. And what eventually happens is when you fight it so, so hard, and don't try to have an external force remove it from you, you and Tar Baby, you and anxiety become one. You become anxious. That's what you become. Now, that's not to say that anxiety, as we think about it, as we say that Tar Baby is a, a, a thing, but it's kind of not a thing too, right? Right? It is, but it isn't, right? Tar baby's in the road, but tar baby isn't a real person, is it? Right? So I'm not saying tar baby isn't real and anxiety isn't real, but it isn't a real person in that sense. So we need to be careful how we think about anxiety and how we confront the emotions like this. It's certainly real in the sense that you're going to feel it. You're going to experience it. You're going to have those emotions kind of on us. But we as conservatives, we tend to underplay our emotions, don't we? Too many times we just want to suppress them. We get these emotions and we think, I just need to push it down and get away from it. And Our our way of managing emotions is just to be emotionless. We become stoics. But the reality is is that God gave us emotions, didn't he? This may come as a shock to some of you. I know it does to me sometimes. But God gave us emotions so that we can feel. We are supposed to be feelers. We're supposed to feel things. And the the reality is, is that we just need to have the right place for emotions in our mind. We need to have uh, put emotions in their right place, I guess we should say. Rachel Jankovic talks about this. I think some of you have read her before. And I really like the way that she talks about her children uh, and their emotions. She says that emotions are like spirited, beautiful horses. They're given to you as a gift from God and you're uh, given them to ride around and they can take you in all these wonderful places. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to pull the reins back. You have to be able to take control and say, no, we're not going to go here. And if that horse tries to jump off in the ditch and take you in a place that is not right, that you know that you should not go, you might need to jump off. You might need to get away. So we need to have the right place for emotions. And what we need to realize is that there's triggers in our lives that are going to evoke all kinds of emotions. And so what do we do with the emotions? That's really the question. Now, we need to realize that, again, emotions aren't all sins. And even anxiety isn't always a sin. That might come as a shock as well. Anxiety isn't always a sin. You can see biblical examples where people became anxious about certain things and it wasn't necessarily a sin. In the Old Testament, Saul, when he was being led away by Samuel to be anointed, it said that his father became anxious about him and his donkey. And it was more than just the donkey. He became wondering, where's my son at? And you wouldn't fault him for wondering, where is my son The anxiousness wasn't necessarily a sin. Daniel, after he received a prophetic vision, it said that he was anxious about it. So God spoke to him. God said the truth. He confronted reality, and he was anxious about it, it says. Jesus, when he was in the temple learning, his parents were looking for him. And it says that they were in great distress. They were anxious. They were worried about their son. What would happen? Where is he? What's going on? And it doesn't say anything about, well, they were in great sin and someone came along and rebuked them. It's a common response to have this kind of simple anxiety. What we need to realize is it just has to have the right place. It can't control our whole lives and our whole reality. Now, if you turn back a couple pages, there's an interesting thing that I'd like you to see. If you turn to chapter 2, probably just a page or two back in your Bible. Chapter 2, verse 28, the same author, we're still in Philippians, same Paul writing this, says this if I can find it. Oh, he says, he's talking about Epaphroditus and his friend. He says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him. So there's the rejoicing again. And that I may be less anxious. That I may be less anxious. So the same author writing the same book, the same letter, all in one, they didn't have the chapters and verses when he wrote this. Just a couple lines later, he's saying, do not be anxious for anything. So there has to be some kind of balance here, doesn't there? There's going to be emotions that hit us. So the reality is just what we do with them. Now, how can we do such a task as figure out what we do with those emotions, right? They're really complex. They hit you all at once. What do you do? The next thing we're going to look at is our reorientation or our relationship to Christ. In verse 5, it says this. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now that's really important. Those simple words. The Lord is at hand. Is that what you're thinking when you're going through your anxious time? That the Lord is at hand. In the moment of anxiousness when whatever it is presents itself that's causing you to be anxious, are you thinking at that moment, oh, it's fine. The Lord's at hand. I can rest. We often don't, do we? We start looking at the anxiousness. Our mind isn't on the fact that the Lord is at hand. Our mind is on the fact that God, or that the, this thing is here and I have to take care of it. I have to fight it. I have to get rid of it. What am I going to do? Am I going to blame someone? Am I going to close my eyes and kind of ignore it? What am I going to do? The Lord is at hand precedes the exhortation to not be anxious because it's the essential element to obtaining that peace. Do you know what God commands more than anything else in Scripture? Do you remember? probably on one of those trivia things that I was seeing uh, before the service. Do you know what is commanded more than anything in Scripture? Fear not. It comes in different forms. It's not always those two words. Sometimes it's do not be afraid, but fear not, do not be worried, do not be anxious. Fear not. And what usually comes after that? For I am with you. We don't fear. We don't become anxious because God is with us every day step of the way. So adjusting your mind to the fact that God is near to the brokenhearted and is ready to save is the way that you take your mind off of yourself and on to the solution. It's realizing that you need help. It's realizing that you can't get out. That you need to get some kind of external force to remove the anxiety from you. And that is looking to Christ. Because he's the one that is the solution. The Lord is at hand. Recognizes God is with you even in the valley right we think about psalms 23 he leads us by still waters and the green pastures but he also sometimes leads us through the valley does he not Through the valley of the shadow of death we fear not because he is with us and his rod and his staff does what it comforts us it brings us peace it reminds us that the lord is taking care of us Do you know what that rod does? Have you seen a shepherd's crook before? That kind of crooked stick? Do you know what that does? Do you know what that hook on the end is for? It's for grabbing you around the neck and pulling you back when you're starting to stray away. And that's what brings us peace. Because that rod not only pulls us back to the Lord who is at hand and is near to us, the brokenhearted, who goes after the sheep, it's also there to strike the wolves, whatever they may be. Could be an anxious presence in your life that's just trying to engulf you in it But the Lord will draw you near. He pulls you into himself. And that staff, that comforting presence of the Lord is what brings you peace. Now this is the crux of understanding your escape from anxiousness. If you want to lead your family, fathers, you're trying to lead your family, trying to lead with a non-anxious presence, business leaders, managers, elders, trying to lead your church, community leaders on city council, things like that, Government officials, if you want to lead, and you want to lead people rightly, you need to lead with a non-anxious presence. And how do you do that? The only way that you can do that is leading through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It seems simple, but it's the reality. You can't lead your families into peace, into non-anxiousness, if you're not doing it, reorienting yourself all the time to who God is, to Christ Jesus is to you, what the truth of the gospel is. You have to do it through a relationship that is constantly preaching the gospel to yourself, that is reorienting, kind of moving yourself towards God. If not, whatever the thing is, is going to rule and reign. And we see this, don't we, all the time in our families. When we allow ourselves to kind of slip back on our parenting, the circumstances rule and reign. The emotions rule and reign. In our communities, when things happen, if we don't take charge and shift our minds, our orientation towards God, we're going to be wrapped up in all the emotion. We're going to be dying, literally dying, spiritually dying of anxiousness, depression, of hardship. Our country is doing it right now. Our whole nation right now is suffering from chronic anxiety. We are a terrified people. Stuff scares our people to death. And the whole world sees it. We're not known as a reasonable country, are we? When people look at us, We're a people that are freaking out. Why? Because, quite frankly, our country isn't being led, orienting itself towards God. We are anxious as America because we haven't allowed God to be at hand. That's the reality. And it it stinks, but guess what? There's actually something you can do about it. You, You guys can do things as citizens, as members of your churches, as members of your community, as fathers, as parents, there's actually things you can do. Anxiousness, your emotions don't have to rule and reign. You can allow Christ to rule and reign by putting your faith in him. Now, we as sheep need to encourage each other to stay near the great shepherd, do we not? When the whole flock is kind of moving away, that's, that's our role there in that time. That's our role as Christians where we have to take that hard and courageous stand, those kind of stands you see all through Acts where people are making bold confessions of who Jesus is and say, no, we're not going to bow to Caesar. We're not going to worship Caesar. Jesus is Lord and the Lord is at hand. So when the whole flock is kind of going off the cliff like the demon-possessed pigs, we need to be the sheep that are saying, no, we're going to stand here. We're going to be a faithful church. We're going to be a faithful family. We're going to be a faithful business. We're going to be a faithful whatever it might be. And we have that great opportunity to let our reasonableness be known to our communities. And that draws people into our Lord and Savior. So when the moment comes, we have that opportunity to react. We're on number four now. Reactivity. We'll look at verse six. It says, do not be anxious about anything. You've heard it said a hundred times. You're anxious about something and someone says, the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, I want you to note a couple things. First, note the command, do not be anxious about anything, is sandwiched between all kinds of gospel truths. Think about the things that we've read so far. The rejoicing in the Lord, knowing who God is, knowing the gospel, the truth of that, that he's near to us. And then on the other side, we haven't got there yet, but we've read it already, haven't we, that there's a peace that we can get. There's all kind of gospel truths to comfort us that are sandwiched on both sides of the command, do not be anxious. So we need to realize that, that it's not just a simple command to just cut it out. Right? Because we, be really, we can be really harsh sometimes, I think, when we're applying scripture and the way that we talk to people. We almost come off as just saying, well, just stop it. Just stop being anxious. And you can't just stop it that easily, can you? So we need to be gentle how we take it and take things in context and remember the gospel truths that come with that. So we recognize that. And then when the moment of truth comes, and it may be any kind of thing, our community I've heard has had the thing happen this week. We've had hardship come. Whatever that might be. It might be struggling with your kids. Your kids might be going through some kind of psychological, mental, or social problem and you're hurting for them and you become anxious about it. Maybe you're praying about a job. You don't know which way you should go, this way, that way, your place of work. Or family struggles, the pressures that come with that. And your friends are saying this thing. They want you to do this. And your family's saying this. And you're thinking you want to do this. And your spouse is doing this. And you're kind of pulled in all these different directions or maybe you're praying about the Scripture in the Bible. You can even become anxious about a good thing. Like, what is God's Word really saying about this? I know this theologian says this, and this person says this. I'm just trying to be faithful, and I don't know what to do. And we can find all kinds of ways to kind of get worked up in our anxiousness. Maybe you have some weird pain, and you pull up your phone, and you search it, you Google it, WebMD. Everyone knows, every time, it's cancer. But the reality is, though, we, we kind of giggle and we laugh, because we've all been there. You've had that kind of, oh it could be cancer, but the reality is, is it could be cancer. That's, that's the kind of the, the realness to this text is that it could be cancer. It has been cancer in my family. It could be death. It could be you sitting at a funeral at a pew trying to find your breath, just searching for it because you're wondering what in the world happens next. We're going to bury my loved one, my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter, my mom, my dad, my friend, whoever it might be, that moment of truth might actually come. And when it comes, we need to know what to do. Because it could be you. That's that's the reality of this text. I want want you to feel that. And I know I've said the reality like a hundred times now, but that's really what we're talking about is sometimes life is hard and it hurts and our emotions can come and tell us that all of life is going to revolve around that one event. And it's our job in that moment to kind of recalibrate and figure out how am I going to react? What is your reactivity going to be to the anxiousness when it does come? Because it probably will. Life is hard sometimes. You can't just flip the switch and turn it off. So a couple things. First, when we hear do not be anxious for anything, we too often think it's, it's only about the potential small anxieties. Right? Right? So often when I've heard, do not be anxious about anything, it's the smallest little things that people are applying to that. But it applies to the big things too, those really, really hard life events. And this text isn't just Jesus saying, don't cry over spilt milk. It's not that. It's for those really hard times as well. So we need to be careful how we take this. He's given you steps to be free from crushing, brutal slavery to our emotions. And we need to apply this in the right way. Now, second, if you know someone going through this kind of anxiety, please don't give them a trite scripture quotation that just says, don't be anxious for anything, right? When people are going through it, think about Mary and Joseph as they were losing their children, looking all over frantically. She's in great distress. Can you think of the the bozo that might come up and say, well, the Bible says don't be anxious for anything. Just, Just don't be anxious. And just a bare command to stop it. I'm not sure which would be the greater sin in that moment, that Bozo acting like a friend of Job or the Mama Mary punching him in the face. Like That's what happens when we try to just kind of give these small little scripture quotations and we think, oh, I did my job as a Christian. I said the verse and now it's fine. Now we need to be ministers of reconciliation. We need to softly, gently. and That, that uh, scripture where it says that let our reasonableness be known to everyone. Some translations say let your moderation. Some even say let your gentleness be known to everyone. Our gentleness is applying the gospel truth with the command to not be anxious. These have to go together. Now, let me explain to you why you can't just give one verse and expect it to help. The cure to anxiety is not just saying, don't be anxious, stop it, cut it out. That's never helped anyone. If any one of you have ever dealt with depression or anxiety or any serious like um, entrapment of an emotion, how much has it helped when someone just said, well, why don't you just stop? You can't just stop. You can't just turn it off. It takes more than that. The law says, thou shalt not. But the gospel says that Jesus can do it. Right? The command, the, the law, the Ten Commandments says, don't do this. But the whole role of the law is to make you realize that you can't do it so we don't need to administer the law we don't need to administer the command in those moments of hurt what we need to do is give the whole gospel truth God says not to do this but guess what Jesus is there for you the good news is that Jesus has went through this Jesus has got you he's at hand so it's the gospel truth paired with the command that we need to apply this and minister to this to people we can't just say stop it or cut it out it's harsh it really is People in those situations, they are only going to feel hate if you just say the command in those times. When you've really, really screwed up and that person's in jail or done something awful and you just come and the first thing you say is, don't you know the Bible says don't murder? It doesn't help. It doesn't do any good. The person knows that they've messed up. What they need is the balm of the gospel. The gospel is what heals. And even Paul says that the law is powerless to save. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You administer the good news to people in those moments. Here's something else that won't work. You've heard me say a couple times now that uh, getting your mental state of being is where you need to, to, to work on and be oriented towards. Now this is important because many people try to cope by not thinking about their mental state, but thinking about their state of doing instead of their state of being. They think, you know what, this is really hard, so I think uh, this month I'm just going to start working overtime. I'm going to get really busy, I'm going to work really hard, and it's just going to keep my mind off of it. How many of you have done done that before? Did it work? No. It doesn't just go away. You can't just busy yourself out of it. That was Martha's problem. Remember Martha and Mary? She's frantically trying to get ready for Jesus' presence in the kitchen, trying to make her hospitality perfect, And then Mary is just sitting there at Jesus' feet doing nothing. But Jesus says, no, Mary has chosen the good portion, the better portion. Martha, Martha, you're anxious about many things. So what we need to do sometimes is just be still. You need to be ready, church, to just meditate on the goodness of God. And I know that's a scary thing to do if you're going through this emotional uh, slavery as it can sometimes be, is to just be still, to sit still with God, meditate on his word day and night, and allow God to do his work. So we react to anxiousness not by fighting it, not by ignoring it, not by busying ourselves. We react by crying out for help. We let our requests be known to God. We bring it to the Lord in prayer and supplication. and We think about briar rabbit and his predicament that he was in he was covered in the problem and he knew that he couldn't get out on his own he needed something outside of him to remove the problem so what we need to do is get to a state where we realize that we can't get out on our own you're not going to fight anxiousness and win doing it by yourself what we need to do is bring it to the lord Allow Him to remove that anxiousness from you. Kind of pull it off, and I like to imagine uh, like God holding a holding a rabbit uh, with a bunch of tar in it. That's us, and He's kind of just picking the anxiousness off of us, and He's saying, "Be still, just be still. Know that I'm God." As we're trying to jerk away, and you're like, "No, I got to get busy. I just got to get to work. I got I got to do this." He's like, "No, just be still. Let me apply the gospel to you. Let me apply my redemptive work by removing your issue." That's what God does to us. He removes our sins. He removes our shackles, our slavery, our bondage to sin. And we get there by prayer and supplication. Now, it seems simple, doesn't it? Just pray about it, right? Have you prayed about it? Yeah, I prayed about it. Seems simple, but how often do we really pray about it? How often do we really take issues to the Lord? How often do we let God have his time to work on us? Too often we just kind of say the prayer one or two times and we think, I don't know what's going on. God hasn't taken care of it yet. And we go back to doing our thing. We go back to the busyness. We go back to whatever it might be. Now, if you've read C.S. Lewis on anxiety, um, you might be shocked about his remedy. It's kind of interesting. C.S. Lewis basically says this. You fix your anxiety by thinking of the worst possible thing that could happen to you, and then you just move forward in life. Now, what was he saying there? Thinking about the worst possible thing that could happen to you. What he's trying to do is get you to realize that you don't have control of your life. That's what he's getting at. You think of the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you because that's the moment where you're really ready to hit rock bottom and confess, I can't do it. I think C.S. Lewis is a wise man. I'm not saying that you need to go home and just start thinking of all the worst possible things that could happen to you, but there's something to that, isn't there? To realizing that God is in control and you are not. That's a good place to be, church where God is in control of your life. Ralph Herring said it best when he said, you think you actually want or you think you want the peace that surpasses all understanding, but you actually want the peace that is very easily understood. Think about that church. We think that we want the peace that surpasses all understanding, but what we actually want in that moment is God to give us five easy steps. We want the blog that says, do these things and you can have it. But remember, that's what the law does. Do this and you shall live. But you can't. You fall short every time. You need the gospel. So C.S. Lewis is wise in saying that we need to think of the worst possible moment because that gets you at your place where God is God and you are man. Because that's what it really comes down to, is recognizing that it doesn't all revolve around you and your anxiousness. It actually revolves around God. He's the one that's in charge and he's the one that's taking care of all of this. Now, it says that you need to let your requests be made known. Does God know your requests? Do you need to let let him know about it because he doesn't know? No. God knows every one of your issues. He knows your burdens. He knows your struggles. You're not pouring out your prayers and your supplications and asking God, please heal me of this, please do this, please do that, so he can know about it. He does it so that he can be your counselor. Isaiah says that Christ is our wonderful counselor. And guess what? Here's the good news of the gospel that counsel is free. That's, that's good news for you, church. As we try to think about solutions and how to get out of this, we have a God that is ready to walk with us through every step of the way, through our prayers. Do you think about your prayers in that way? Or do you think of just prayers as kind of like pushing a paper saying, I want this, I want that, this is what I want, here's the deal. Because prayer can be a really beautiful, intimate moment with your creator where he becomes your counselor and you can kind of just imagine yourself sitting on a couch and he's there, the all-wise counselor that created everything, that knows everything, and you get to ask him questions. You get to pour out your anxieties. You get to pour out your problems. And he has real solutions. Solutions that are going to work, that are promised to work. We have promises in Scripture that God will apply to us if we come to him in prayer. Those simple things, just pray about it, seems so simple but it works, does it not? Have you known that presence of the Lord where there's been a real issue in your life where you actually brought it to the Lord in prayer and how comforting it is to know when you start throwing out these pleas to the Lord like, I'm hurting, this is painful, I don't know what's going on, I don't know what to do and the Lord just comforts you in that presence of the Holy Spirit and he brings those scriptures to mind. Where in former days you've read your Bible every day. You didn't realize that you really, really need that verse one day. But then the Lord brought it to you in that moment. And he applied that verse to you, and he applied the gospel to you. And you had a peace that surpassed all understanding. It didn't even make sense. You're going through hell, literally the worst thing you could think of. And then you get a peace that just kind of washes over you in a much more powerful way than anxiety ever could. And doesn't make sense. You can't rationalize it. And I'm sure many of you have felt that before. And we can have that same kind of presence through these simple means of grace. Coming to the Lord, pouring out your requests, letting, him, letting them be known to God, and being that little rabbit that's scared, terrified, covered in tar, sitting in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord's just saying, sit still. Be still. Know that I am God. as he picks the anxiety from you like tar on fur. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the good news that we have, that we can get at our very end, throw our hands up, and just let God be God, and he can take care of us. And what are the results? Number five. Verse seven says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The results are conclusive. If you're Looking for understanding, how it works, then good luck. You're not going to find it. But that's not what you should be looking for anyway. Don't look for the understanding. You should be searching after the peace of God, not the understanding. Right, we're supposed to know things in Scripture. Knowledge is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But at the end of the day, what you need is a peace that doesn't make sense, that you can't rationalize, because there is no rationalization for it. Right? There's no human reason why when you have this horrible death in the family that you should be at complete peace other than the gospel. The gospel changes everything. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we live. And it's important that we get those last three words there. It makes all the difference in verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the only place that you can get it. Right, we often skip over these three words. Paul says it all the time. In Christ Jesus. We're in Christ. We're doing this. We're doing that. In Christ. But we don't think about what he's really saying. That we have a union with Christ and a connection to his work, his righteousness, his goodness. You are connected to Jesus. And you get that peace that Jesus has as a righteous being, as God of the universe, through faith in Him. And that's something that we should not take lightly. Those, those three little words in Christ Jesus literally are a matter of life and death to you. You will die in your anxiety if you don't apply the gospel in Christ Jesus. Now, what does Romans say? How do we think about this peace of God and the gospel? Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God where through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say that in your prayers? Because if you can't, this is your opportunity church. If you don't know that relationship with Jesus that brings a real peace, you know, I might need to be searching for the real Jesus. I'm not saying if you ever have anxieties that you'll never have anxiousness, but I'm saying that there's a real peace to be had with God where when you come to Jesus, when you come to God, you're not scared and trembling and terrified at who God is. You have a peace because you know what Jesus has done for you. That's important. That matters. In In a situation where you're dealing with crippling anxiety, you have to do it through Christ Jesus. And here's the good news, church, that Christ's love frees us from slavery to our emotions and feelings? Do you feel like a slave? Because you don't have to in Christ Jesus. You can be free in Christ Jesus. How? By Christ controlling us. And that scares some people. I've heard a lot of people say, God doesn't control us. He doesn't control us. He's not in control. He's in charge. Because love isn't controlling. Let me tell you this, church. If someone says that, I question whether or not they've preached through the Bible before. Because... Through all the scripture, you can see this same kind of thing, but you can see it very specifically and word for word. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says this, For the love of Christ controls us. He's not just in charge. He's controlling us. He's taking care of us. But the love of God controls us because we've concluded this. It says that one has died for all, therefore all, all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's why Christ died. He died so you didn't have to live as a slave to your emotions, to whatever might come your way, to your circumstances. He lived so that you could be a willing slave for him. And you get all kinds of benefits for being a slave of Christ. That's the way scripture speaks of you, if you're a believer, that you are a slave of Christ, but it is the most glorious kind of thing to be a slave but also a son. Are you not son and daughter of the living God? By your union with Christ and being connected to him, you had that great privilege of having Christ control you by his love to pull you out of those circumstances, to free you from those slaveries to sin. Now as we close, let me, let me take C.S. Lewis's thought and just take it one step further. So C.S. Lewis, right, he said that we should just think of our worst possible moment in our life. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? I think that's good advice, but I'd like to just go a little bit further and say, think of the worst possible thing that could happen in all of history and humankind. What is the worst catastrophe that could happen? I want you to go there and think of that worst possible image in your mind and think about what it might be. It's the death of Jesus where the only righteous man, the man that deserved nothing bad ever happening to him, had the worst thing happen to him. That moment in history is where you need to go in your anxieties, where Jesus is the suffering servant for you, where he's taking on sins and doing something that he didn't have to do, going through awful anxiety. Think about the anxiousness of Jesus as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane leading up to his death he was thinking of the worst thing that could possibly happen to him he was sweating as it were great drops of blood that's a real physical thing that can happen to you you can be in such emotional distress and anxiousness that you can begin to sweat blood and jesus did that he was there he's been with you he's sympathized with your needs when you felt like you are feeling more anxiousness than anyone has ever felt in the world think of jesus leading up to the cross, where he was getting ready to face the worst possible thing that could ever happen. Well, this scares us, because if we're not thinking it with the right mind, those mysteries, those lack of control start to scare us. But we think about Jesus, and how he confronted something that could have been potentially extremely scary. But he knew that he was confronting something he knew it clearly because he was God. We don't know the future. He was thinking clearly about something that was not for his good, right? We, we start to get anxious and we, we're forgetting that all things are for our good, don't we? Because that's what the Bible says. That's the truth. We, we lack trust and we think, oh, goodness, what's going to happen? But the reality is God says that it works for our good. But there was a moment in Jesus' life where he's in the garden where he's really anxious and he knows that something's going to happen. And guess what? It wasn't going to be for his good. It was going to be for yours. The cross was for your good. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be at peace with God through the cross. So church, as you're going through these kind of anxieties, as you're stressing about this, I want you to think about the suffering servant of Christ Jesus, how he went through that for you. He's been there. It's been worse no one in this room has been crucified. And even if you did, it couldn't have been as worse, or couldn't be worse than Jesus and his anguish that he was on the cross, where he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're a believer in this church this morning, none of you can pray that prayer because God hasn't forsaken you. He forsook his son, his son. Son took the price that we should have taken. He substituted his life for you and your anxieties, your struggles, your worries, your depression, whatever that emotional slavery might be, he nailed it to the cross with him. And that's the good news that you have, church, this morning. I hope that you take heart in that. I hope that you apply it to your life, that you are mindful of this as you wake up in the morning and those pressures start to sweep upon you and you take that in control and you say, no, I have a great Savior. I have a great Shepherd. His rod, His staff, it comforts me, and I can face today. I can wake up today, and I can go out with a, reasonableness pre- or a reasonable presence that the world might see a non-anxious presence because I am a son or a daughter of God. Let's pray. Father, we need You more than we even know. Lord, I pray that You would reveal even more of our need to You so that we can have the good news applied to our hearts and our minds, that it might surpass all of our understanding and blow our minds by your goodness, your grace towards us, your love and your tender care, how you heal us, you forgive us, you bring us peace, and we thank you for these things, that you've brought them to us in Christ Jesus, that we have been brought near by the blood of the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.